Today's show is brought to you by Tim Rogers' book, Detours. The book is available in all good stores or wherever you get your books. So get out prior to Christmas and buy a gift for yourself or someone else and make sure it's Detours by Tim Rogers. Tim Rogers, the front man and singer for the hugely popular rock and roll band UMI, is a shambolic, flamboyant and dapper Aussie flaneur, a seeker after truth, love and understanding. He's a contradiction, a hard-drinking rock star with the soul of a poet, a wordsmith and a raconteur, a romantic and a realist, a bon vivant and a loner. Detours is Tim's offbeat and immensely charming memoir where he reflects on everything from what it is to be a man to love, drinking, footy and fatherhood. Get out to your local bookstore and make sure you don't miss out on this amazing book. Robert Forster from the Go-Betweens, a set of detours. Tim is a beautiful writer. Tim Rogers takes you where you want to go. So do yourself a favor and grab a copy of Tim Rogers' Detours today. Let's get on with the show. We have ignition sequence start. Short distance, high impact. Five, four, three, two, all engines running. Ten questions with Adam Joir. Big names, great minds. Make yourself a cup of tea. Lift off. We have lift off. Welcome back to 10 Questions. Now, one of the best things about moving to the US is that I've met so many great Australians. That wasn't the plan, but that's how it's worked out. And one of the greatest of these Australians is the best-selling author, Bradley Trevor Grieve. BTG, as we call him, has sold more than 30 million books in 29 languages across 115 countries. The Blue Day book is certainly what launched him, but more recently... There's been Penguin Bloom, which is about to be made into a movie starring Naomi Watts. BTG is also an animal expert. He used to be one of those rugged Australians who'd showcase animals on Chelsea Lately and The Late Late Show with Craig Ferguson. And these days he hosts documentaries for Animal Planet about bears. But before all that, and before all the best-selling author stuff, he was a paratrooper platoon commander in the Australian Army. Me, BTG, and one of my cats sat down for this interview in my living room, and I started by asking him when he was most happy. I'm happy most of the time, Zwaring. Uh, <laughs> often uh, dangerously so, but I want to be clear, I'm not afraid of feeling sad uh, uh, as well. I like to think I have a rich inner emotional life, uh, despite my uh, my rather wild, astute veneer. Uh, but I do vividly recall some very special memories from childhood, and I think one that stands out more than the others, was learning to drive my grandfather's tractor, a big old red Massey Ferguson tractor in Gippsland, Victoria, on his, uh, his dairy farm. And uh, it was just, it's just one of those special memories that even thinking about it now makes me feel pretty special. Yeah. What, and how old were you? I would have been six. You know, so the gear six, and there's two, you know, were, were just huge you know it was like holding on to a cantaloupe and this just endless steering wheel uh it was a it was a it was an amazing feeling and with a, a really beautiful man who i really loved and admired and uh one of the highlights of my life was because uh, we were in asia at the time i started born in tasmania but we traveled to asia where, and europe where my mother and father were running hospitals so i didn't spend every holiday with my grandparents in victoria uh, but when we did, we'd stay there for a good few weeks. And I'd get in the routine of getting up at dawn and, and milking the cows with him and then going again at sunset. Wow. And there was about a two-kilometer dirt road from the house to the dairy. And it was cold as hell, you know, in winter, as you can imagine. 
Uh, and it was funny because over my childhood, graduating from the tricycle at the house to an adult bicycle, yeah. it was a very special journey. So, uh, yeah, I think that was that was uh, one of the happiest memories of my childhood. But I think as a, as, a, as an adult, uh, I'm in my late 40s now. I didn't get married until a few years ago. And I think for a long period of time, I felt that I'd missed out on finding the love of my life. And having found that person and fallen head over heels in love and, you know, getting married and waking up that first morning as a married man felt incredibly special and it still does. Oh, that's great. But, you know, it's funny. I, uh, you know, I'm not going to say my life was a complete waste before I was married, but I, I'm a better person yeah. for, for being married. And I don't know whether that speaks to the fact that I was a terrible person beforehand, but uh, there is something very special in, uh, in finding, uh, in my case, uh, you know, a beautiful woman who, who loves me and, and has, shares the hopes and dreams that I have mm. um, and who I am continually astonished by and just, uh, you know, enjoy her every breath. So it's a very special moment when you, you travel through life and indeed, in my case, the whole world many times over. I must have more frequent flyer miles than NASA. <laughs> and then you finally come up to someone who, uh, to paraphrase Jerry Maguire, completes you. It's a really beautiful feeling. And uh, it means little to me to, if people think that that's somehow diminishing of, of my sense of self. It just isn't. My life is bigger now. Yeah. And what, what have you ironed out? What personality traits did you get rid of when you... Um, oh, when you I shed so many reptilian skins uh, in, in my savage and curious youth. Um, I, I think there's a level of maturity and a, a, a love of life in the broader sense that it's not just about me. The mm. consequences of my actions have the most immediate impact upon those whom I love the most. Mm. And when you're with that person all the time, you see it. And if you're in any way aware of what's going on around you, there it is, so visible. And it's it's very affirming if you're doing good things and, and, and very much, a, um, you know, likewise in reverse it's it's very obvious when you're making errors so it's mm-hmm. it's not just the fact that you improve uh to be married or it, you improve as a person through being married because as i say the consequences of your thoughts and feelings words and actions impact greatly on the person right in front of you you love more than anything else and if you can somehow get that to translate to the rest of the world then you'll probably be doing a great deal of good I'm not saying I've mastered that. There are plenty of married people out there who do horrific things. Question two. Who would you like to apologize to and why? Uh, well, you know, John Cleese, my one truly famous friend, describes my entire life as one long suicide attempt. And 17 surgeries and five treatments for rabies later, I can, I can see his point. And I wish I'd been a little bit more careful embarking on the injurious misadventures of my youth. So... Part of me thinks I should apologize to my parents for putting them through so many scary moments of me end up in hospital with pins and things sticking out of me. But then the medical professionals, they're used to that. Mm. I remember my mum and dad came to see me at Royal North Shore Hospital in Sydney after a, a dirt bike racing accident. And they didn't even really greet me. They came into the room and just walked straight over to the charts and started reading them. Yeah. And then my mother comes up to me, and, you know, my arms up in a sling and my legs, both legs are trussed up and my midsection all battered and bruised and bleeding and, and just says, oh, Bradley, haven't we grown out of this yet? Oh, wow. So, you know, I think, I, you know, I think I was trying to be clever. 
I would have my younger self apologize to my my current self for the you know just the endless Meccano set of, of titanium pins and scar mm. tissue that holds me together. But I actually take a more pragmatic approach to apologies, and I'm reluctant to give them because um, I take the view that if you're really sorry, you'd make changes in your life and you wouldn't do things again. And that would be the best way of apologizing is to make sure you didn't make those mistakes Mm. and and hurt those people. And I differentiate cause for apology with regret. I think it's very important to have regrets. Uh, It's part of the rich tapestry of life. You can't possibly aspire to achieve anything significant if you don't make stupid mistakes that you regret that you learn from. Mm. But as you know, uh, but your listeners may not, I spend a lot of time in a remote island in in Alaska, a place called Kutsnuwu, which is a land of the Native American Tlingit people. And I'm actually now an adopted member of the Deshitan clan of the Tlingit people. And in Tlingit, uh, there is literally no word for apology. There's no word for sorry or I'm sorry or any version of that. There is a word for thank you. It's gunal chish or contracted to the equivalent of some saying thanks or ta. You just say chish. So you can say thank you, but you can't say you're sorry because in Klingit, it, words mean nothing uh, in terms of reparation. You can't undo Uh, a negative experience or encounter or a mistake that's injurious to someone else by saying you're sorry you have to give something tangible so the correct thing to do is to is to make a gift or an offering and it could be something as simple as crass as money or back in the day it could have been blankets or food but it has to be a tangible demonstration of of regret Mm. and apology so i kind of take the, the view that if i was ever going to apologize i would have by now but um, I'm certainly going to make a greater effort uh, to show people demonstrably and tangibly how I feel about them by, by living a life that's indicative of someone who's learned from their mistakes. I, that's great. And, and sorry for being glib, but if you're expecting a, an apology from BTG, yeah. if it's not arrived by now, you're not getting one. Exactly. Question three, what is your greatest regret? Oh, this is painful. And... Uh, so, as I said, I've made a great many, sometimes spectacular and heroic mistakes. Much of my life has been a flummery of ineptitude. But my greatest, most painful regret is that in 2010, I failed to properly latch the gate on my property in Tasmania. I went into town uh, to have lunch, and it's a fair way down the road. I still don't know how I made this error. Didn't latch the gate properly. And while I was in town, uh, my three Great Danes got out and attacked my neighbor's sheep and killed a number of sheep and mauled a great many more. And uh, they were declared dangerous and destroyed, put to sleep, and I buried them on the farm. And I have lived on my own for a long, long time. And, you know, I'm something of a cave bear. I like people seeing less and less of me. So I enjoyed living in in this just magnificent isolation. And those three dogs were my best friends and my family, however you choose to judge that. But they were my responsibility. And my carelessness uh, led to their lives being lost. And I've, I've never forgiven myself for it. And I probably never will. Well, yeah, I remember the post you wrote on Facebook around that time and just being in, in tears. Yeah, it was devastating. I mean, they're my family and I, and, I, and I let them down. And 
I, I had one job, you know, to look after my dogs. And, uh, you know, I aspire to, to parenthood and I hope that some good comes out of that mistake and that uh, I'm, I'm more attentive as a result. But it was, um, yeah, I think that the great regrets I have are when I've, I've done things that have subjected others uh, through no fault of their own to pain or hardship. And I know I've done plenty of those. Can but I, the dogs in particular really hurts me. And did, did, they, did that experience send you over to America? In a strange way, it did. Um, not that I was fleeing my pain. I'm, uh, I'm an acolyte of crowded house of the notion that you take the weather with you. So, but yeah, it did. It, 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 it damaged me deeply emotionally. You know, the, the pain and the regret of that uh, was debilitating. Um, here's, the, here's the cruel irony. I just published uh, a book, uh, a very funny book about, uh, about dogs and my love of dogs at the time called Why Dogs Are Better Than Cats. And photographs of my dogs feature in the book. So here's this major worldwide release. And I was just starting to promote that uh, when it happened. So I had to call off the worldwide book tour for that. I just couldn't speak about it. And I, I needed help. You know, I, I, was, I was very fortunate to have so many loving friends and neighbors in rural Tasmania. I remember the day the dogs were buried on my farm, uh, it felt like almost everybody, I had a, a, for want of a better term, a townhouse. It wasn't really a townhouse, but in town in St. Helens on the east coast of Tasmania. And that night, unannounced, pretty much the whole town turned up at my place with a bottle of, of wine or some beer or something to eat. Kind of this spontaneous wake, which is quite extraordinary when you think about it. But everyone knew how, how much I, I cherished those dogs. And that, and that love... Uh, just that quiet, unassuming love and compassion from my fellow Tasmanians got me through initially, but I needed more. I was really struggling. So I actually left Tasmania fairly quickly after I put the dogs, uh, I buried the dogs on the farm and I flew up to spend time with my family in Queensland. And uh, I, I, I got some counselling and uh, tried to reconcile what had happened. And I just lost momentum emotionally to commit to my writing. And as the world's most successful humorist, it's not very good when you, nothing seems funny anymore. Yeah. And I was very fortunate that I had a long-standing invitation from the Walt Disney Company for their creative think tank, Walt Disney Imagineering, have asked me a number of times to come over and consult. And it's not something that I seriously considered because I didn't want to leave the farm or leave the dogs in Tasmania. But now I didn't have those ties. And more importantly, and immediately I needed get some distance so I came over to America and I didn't expect to enjoy that project as much as I did but I loved it I was the executive creative consultant in residence for Walt Disney Imagineering's Blue Sky Think Tank Think Tank and as a result I agreed to sign up two more times and luckily I did because on my third tour I met uh, the woman who's now my wife so I never in a million years could have imagined that happening and how it happened in and of itself was extraordinary they gave me this brand new office on my third tour i had an office 20 feet from my wife for several months and never met her never met her and then i got a brand new office and the kitchen was incomplete and i had to walk this great distance to get coffee in the morning when i got there early because i had i didn't know anybody here i didn't know anybody I had no life i would get up early come to work and leave late and go home and it suited me just fine so I get in early, get a coffee, and this chap uh, who was actually the admin assistant for my wife and was rather attracted to a large furry man kept inviting me in for coffee because he was a full coffee uh, aficionado. He'd actually put a post-it note 
with the time to the minute of when his coffee was brewed. Anyway, he kept hitting on me and finally we had to have the talk. I'm like, Pat, mate, you're a great guy. And if I ever need a second penis in my life, <laughs> I'm going to call you. But until then, we're just going to be mates. And we became great friends. And because I would go and have coffee with him and his colleagues every morning, I eventually literally ran into my wife while having coffee halfway through my last tour at Disney in 2010. And then we, uh, we started dating. I was in Costa Rica, but we did this sort of travel thing for a few years. And uh, here I am happily married in romantic exile in Southern California. Cat. Little cat. Passive aggressive staring cat. Yeah. <laughs> That's, um... So how long were you... I just let a cat in. Um, so I will edit that bit. How long were you in Tas- How long were you in Tasmania altogether? Well, so I was born in Tasmania uh, in 1970 in the same uh, hospital, same maternity ward as Errol Flynn, but with very few of his famous prejudices and diseases. Um, and then we left for the UK and Asia when I was still uh, portable. But I went back there uh, just before I joined the army, and because when you travel the whole world, when you live this sort of peripatetic lifestyle, roots become more important to you than when you grow up in the same place and live there all your life. Yeah. Because yeah, I'm, I, I didn't really grow up in Australia per se, mm-hmm. in Tasmania. I was elsewhere, uh, Wales, England, Scotland, Hong Kong, Singapore, and other little places in between. And when we came back, we relocated to Sydney, then Southern Queensland in the army, and I was in Canberra. So in one sense, you could say I'm not truly a Tasmanian product, even though I drew my first breath of Tasmanian air when I was born, but I'm not from anywhere else. Yeah. So it became very increasingly important to me. So I went back there uh, just before I joined the army and uh, did a wonderful lap of the island, a little rented Colt XL, which is the, in those days, if you wanted to hire a car and you're under 21, you had to have a, a cubic capacity limit. So there's yeah. tiny little buzz bombs. Yeah, yeah. And I know we called Excel. Yeah, and my and my uh, and uh, my cousin and I just screamed around uh, the mountains of Tasmania like two chimps in a billy cart. We had the best time. I fell in love with it. I said, "This is where I'm from. I love this dark history. I love this dramatic scenery. I am a Tasmanian. I'm coming back here. I committed to when I could afford it to buy a property there uh, between the mountains and the sea, and I did that after the Blue Day book was a big hit and I could afford it." And I stayed there for about 10 years. Wow. And it was probably 10 of the best years of my life. And I go back frequently now and I'm trying to find more projects to take me home more often. Yeah. Because the problem with Tasmania is it's so beautiful and so special that it spoils the rest of the world for you. Yeah. So I love the fact that I've gone abroad and had these other experiences, but it also calls me home. Yeah. Same with uh, Far North Queensland for me. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Um, So that was really with two question marks. Was a cynical, really? I, I, did, I, I, did, love, I love North Queensland. I did sense a little bit of cynicism, but I chose to ignore it. <laughs> Question four is, what will you still need to do to feel you've lived a satisfactory life? On one level, nothing really. Uh, my wife and I uh, have many hopes and dreams uh, that are dear to us, but they're none of your business. And mm. um, The cat is doing business as we speak. The cat is defecating behind me? Yeah. Okay, that's going to add a certain doesn't matter salty pastiche, ladies and gentlemen. Just so you know, <laughs> um, I've always had a, a, a delicate relationship with felines. I'm, I'm, I'm a dog person, and they know it. I tell you, who really hates me? Monkeys and bats. Monkey, monkeys and bats have always hated me. 
I've, I've had uh, I had five treatments for rabies, and it's all been monkeys and bat bites. Um, and on the worst occasion was this giant fruit bat. It's actually my mother's fault. She gave me this uh, synthetic musk cologne called Jovan Musk Oil for Men, and I wore it one summer while assisting a uh, a bat specialist who was tagging these giant uh, grey-headed flying foxes. And it just lit this bat up. There's a huge bat <laughs> with a five-foot wingspan. I've got one in each hand holding by the feet. And just kind of, what the It's hell? screaming, and it's just wrapped my head in this sort of leathery embrace. And I can still remember vividly the quivering pink lipstick of its loins, you know, quivering with carnal intent, oh, plunging my into my ear. There's a lot of screaming. Anyway, so I blame that on my mum. But... Uh, but cats, I've always had a, a strange relationship with cats. I think they're beautiful, elusive, strange creatures, but they're mm. all sociopaths. You know that, right? <laughs> that's, that's, the de- that's the defining difference between cats and dogs. Dogs are social, cats are sociopaths. So you either have an affinity with them, which you do, or you just admire them as, as beautiful, uh, you know, beautiful creatures that... Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't see these two as sociopaths, but um, look, I apologise, dear listener. First, the cat wanted to be let in, then it scratched at the kitty litter behind us for what seemed like an eternity. But back to BTG's point, are cats sociopaths? I put forward the theory that it doesn't really matter because having a cat is good for people, particularly men. It teaches them not to lurch at someone or grab at them or be uncomfortably handsy. If your parents didn't drill that into you, then a cat most certainly will. I think that's actually a very valid thing, but it's specific to domestic cats because I remember getting close to behind a barrier, but behind the scenes, some lions, and it roared at me and turned everything from my you know my nether regions to my nipples just turned to custard i mean it just is this visceral terror the power of it a completely opposite approach but i think that's right i think i think being a little bit more courteous of other people's personal space yeah is probably a good guide i mean australians don't generally have too much of a problem with that because we don't like people being too close to us yeah that's true But you're right there is a there is a overt predatory nature in and masculine culture coming to the fore in America right now. Yeah. With all this sexual harassment of people trying to impose their physical presence and their will yeah. on less powerful people. Yeah. Literally, metaphorically. The, the cat is making you open the door now, which I think is amusing. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. He took a crap behind me while I'm exposing my cell, and then he made you go. And <laughs> it's, it's, the, thing, the thing is, it's uh, the cat will let you also let you know if it likes you. You know. <laughs> um, so we look, we're talking about how do you live a satisfactory life, and and, and you said it was um, you had hopes and dreams with your wife, uh, and uh, they were none of our business. Was there anything right. else you wanted? And to I stand by that, and you should know better than to go there. Um, look, from a professional point of view. Uh, and I want to be very specific. Uh, you know, their personal hopes and dreams are the most important to me, and they're mine. Yeah. And um, your listeners can get stuffed. <laughs> but from a professional point of view, I have always had this fantasy that I have the big comic novel inside me. Yeah. Right. You know, I have the uh, you know the Australian uh, answer to Confederacy of Dunces or yeah. something in me. I don't know that I'll achieve that, but I have to say that lurks. You know, it, it, it scratches at the back of my brain a lot. And I think about that a lot. Uh, so my life won't be a waste of time if I don't achieve that. I now have more recently uh, with my experience with the with the symphony that we did with, um, uh, with Carnival of the Animals, 
which I enjoyed and was successful, I now am realizing how much I'd love to move into the stage. And yeah, I do yeah. have hopes and dreams to, to write something for the stage of, of some significance. Um, and I'm enjoying dabbling in television lately as well and in movies. But that's, that's more just incremental escalation of what I've done before and opportunities create new opportunities and you mm. seize upon the more you don't. I have other more personal goals that are not vitally important that mean a lot to me. So this will sound ridiculous, but I've always wanted to discover a unique species of beetle. Yeah, yeah. And this happens 10,000 times a year, a new beetle species is identified on average every year. How many times? 10,000 times a year. Well, so your odds are quite high. You, you, you would think you, so. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I've written a book about insects and I've seen a lot, but every time I bring one back that looks new to me, it ends up being having already been documented and uh, identified. And does it, do they name it after the discoverer? Well, see, that's a personal choice. Oh. Now, I just think that's the height of arrogance uh, to, I think, and, and it's not very helpful to, you know, Zwari's dung beetle has a certain cachet, <laughs> but it'd be more helpful if you said where it was from. So yeah, I yeah. have some experience on this, as you know. My research in Alaska with these giant brown bears is I've actually identified a new subspecies of brown bear. And so we're going through the process now of, of getting a name for it. So it's an interesting animal that I believed was to be a hybrid species from before the last ice age. And the DNA we've taken has proven that to be true. So I'm not going to call it Bradley's brown bear. I'm going to call it the Kutznawur brown bear. Yeah, yeah. So it'll be Ursus arctus kutznawensis. That to me is respectful and helpful. But mm. there was a time back in the 19th century where everybody felt that they needed to name everything after themselves. <laughs> and I just... To me, as I said, I think it's hilariously arrogant and I think it's unhelpful. So I think also, as you probably know, because we've been friends for some time, I'm very much a believer in experiential driven creativity. I believe that in order to create interesting work, you need to live an interesting life. So I have aspirations of things I want to do that may not seem important to other people, but I want to know. Mm. I want to know and I need to experience it. And so that's why I went through the Russian space program in 2004 and entered the, the Polynesian Strongman Games in 2006 and all the other things that sound ridiculous. I now know what that is in yeah. a way that no one else can until you've done it. But yeah. Some of them are quite silly. Like, for example, the, 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 uh, the musk ox, which is actually a giant goat from before the Ice Age, one of the few large animals to survive the Ice Age in Europe and North America. They are alleged to have had the softest fur in the world. It's a subfur called Kiviet. Um, I want to feel it. I want to go up to the Canadian Arctic and I want to feel it. I want to find yeah. it. They shed it every spring. I want to find it. Now, that doesn't mean much to anybody else. But once you get that bug in your brain, yeah. um, I don't want to die not knowing. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. Oh, can I ask you about the um, the comic novel thing? Because... In, and I've talked to you about this before, that in television, which I work in, and obviously film, that comedy's looked down upon. It's looked as a lesser art form than, than drama. Mm -hmm. um, and and I know that Kingsley Amos always battled that in his life, you know, because he was the comic novelist, you know. Right. Um, and whereas his novels could stand up beautifully, you know, it was stood up beautifully at the time. Sure, so sure. So how, how does that... Um, is that still the case in the publishing world that, you know, the comic novels kind of yeah, I, look I down think, upon? I think, uh, yes. And I think it's so easy to recognize because of the way novels are classified. That's right. And is it reasonable? That would be my other, my other question. 
it's I'm too close to it to give an honest and objective answer to that because such great resentment is welling in my bosom at the suggestion of it. So I have to say it's not reasonable at all. But it's not it's so profoundly misunderstood. So speaking as someone who's dominated the humor bestseller list for a very long time, it drives me crazy. If you want to kill a book, put it in the humor section. Mm-hmm. That's how you kill it. If you say it's 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 this is designed to make you laugh, it is somehow seen as frivolous. Mm. Now don't get me wrong, I'm I'm not Jeremy Irons, mm. uh, some sort of frustrated artist, you know. Mm. Um, but I I just know from just pure retail analysis that the humor section is a dead end. Wow. And whereas you put it as a novel, they don't break them down into how they into how it has to be. The great thing about Kingsley Amos is he's been dead for so long that no one remembers that Lucky Jim was meant to be a comic novel. Mm. Uh, and it sells probably pretty well. His legacy, if it stayed at all, was because he was a drunken sexist pig and his son is Martin Amos. Mm. Um, so I wouldn't worry too much about that. But yeah, I think, I think it's interesting because television is a much more immediate uh, art form. Um, look at me saying art all the time. No. Television is a much more immediate medium mm. and what we're seeing now is this move towards um vega and yet paradoxically sharper content that is neither comedy nor drama mm. it's just really smart mm. and i think people have been always enjoyed really smart things having said that i am a literary omnivore i'll read anything it's usually in reaction to whatever i'm working on so if i'm doing fairly heavy uh, intellectual work, like for example, the decade that I spent studying Russell for my book on Bertram Russell, I'm going to read science fiction and spy novels yeah, yeah, to yeah. decompress. Sometimes I would just get books of of, of comics. Um, the best out at the moment is Poorly Drawn Lines by Reza Farazamand. Um, it's hilariously clever. He's probably the best cartoonist around today. Uh, but you know, Dilbert or you know, just funny, funny things to lighten mm. up the brain. Conversely, um, you know, I'll get fairly heavy uh, historical biographies and so forth if I'm doing stuff that's lighter, such as my gift book series. I want something a bit richer. Yeah. But I think I think television. You look at Breaking Bad, which was spectacular. Te- Are you a Breaking mm. Bad fan? Yeah, yeah. I mean, is that drama? Is it comedy? Um, I refute the notion. I refute the notion that it's purely one or the other. Well, here's the thing. You know, okay. That the the difference is well, there's two differences. The difference is if it's half hour, it has to be funny. True. Generally, um, and the jokes are bolder. Yes. So you go. That is a joke. It yes. can't be interpreted in any other way. Whereas if you're doing the one now, if you're doing Breaking Bad, it doesn't matter. There's so much drama going on. True. 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 And if you have a little laugh here and there, there's no pressure on that. You're not, no. There's no pressure on the writer to be funny. You're not going to get a note from the network saying that's not funny enough, that joke. It doesn't matter. It's all just a little bit of – it's hundreds and thousands, you know, on on a big dessert. Um, so I find that when I'm employing drama writers to write a comedy, they tend to show a little bit of leg and they don't go for the joke hard enough. Interesting. So – A bit I'm, of leg. A little bit of leg, you know. What does that mean? Well, just, so, just, just hinting at a joke as opposed to actually oh. going for it. Okay. You need to, because there's embarrassment about actually going for a joke, you know, because it might, there's a chance it's going to fail. It could very well fail. Yeah, but you have to go for it. Well, what's, what's interesting to me there is you've touched upon different expectations, which always fascinates me. The audience has a certain tolerance for drama 
and eroticism and horror and comedy. Mm. And I would say the most difficult one to satisfy is comedy. But I'm looking forward to someone who just completely changes the tone, you know, from the screaming Lenny Bruce to the to the nebbish Woody Allen, to use American things, yeah. to the to the loud verbal flourishes of a Dave Chappelle. And these are all Americans because I've been watching them for the last five, six, seven years. Mm. And they're not exactly the now, but well, it's interesting. It's an interesting thing with uh, Chappelle because you're actually, he's the manifestation of the, the, uh, the guru who's become a, sorry, the comic has become a guru. Mm, mm. Um, way more than Louis C.K. ever was as far as I'm concerned. Interesting, you know, yeah. You know, Chappelle for me is like a, a great philosopher. He wears those kind of revolutionary coats. He does. Yeah. He, he, likes, he, likes, he likes his sort of militant attire. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, I get that. Um, he, he is, I think it's, um, it's an interesting role that he is playing and that we're seeing in comedy right now. Uh, but, but I think he touches upon what I think is the essence to a lot of great communication in these forms, which is the essence of genius is taking that, which is complex and making it simple, mm. not stupid, not dumb, not dumbing down. And Dave Chappelle uses a type of intellectual shorthand based on popular speech patterns and so forth that come across as authentic. But he's able to just cut right yeah. to the thing. Yeah. Yeah. This is what racism is. This is this yeah, is what yeah. sexism is. This is what poverty is. This is what drug addiction is. And he has an ability to just touch at the yeah, so delicately and so accurately using his humor by being able to this almost laser like focus of not mm. the whole fluff and guff and here's this. You know, these outraged, fluffy characters like Lewis Black or whatever, or back in the old day, uh, who was the guy with the ponytail who was always angry at everything? Uh, George Carlin. Right. He had his moments, but when he lost it was this persona of being angry, mm-hmm. whereas Dave Chappelle is just, let me tell you how it really is. Yeah. And there's very little artifice there. It's interesting. There's something to be said for, for an artist going in exile. So Chappelle mm. spent 10 years or 12 years, was it, after his sketch show in exile, essentially. So it's, it is going to be interesting to see what the next version of Louis C.K. is after he spent his, I'd have to say, five to seven years in exile. It's a tricky situation. He's not the worst offender out there. What he did was disgusting, but he's no Harvey Weinstein. But... His perversities, his public shame was very close to being revealed throughout his career, and now it is. But here's the thing about him that's interesting, is that he was already on the island. He was already someone who liked to be autonomous in every way. Mm. He didn't use agents, he didn't use managers, he booked everything through his website. So what I worry about for Louis C.K., and I have no particular personal investment in his future, is that he doesn't have a support network that a lot of other artists do. Right. Very few people would disown him. You know, a publicist has walked away from him and then he's just him on his own. So um, don't get me wrong, the sympathy lies with his victims, not with him. But I think I think his turnaround is going to be a little bit tricky because there are less people invested in his career. I am fascinated by any kind of turnaround. You know? Sorry, your cat is calling me on my phone. <laughs> okay. I, told, I told her not to. He took a crap behind me, <laughs> opened the door, and now he's calling <laughs> Bloody cat. I apologise. <laughs> um, question five, BTG. Who is the person who most influenced you and how? <clears throat> well, most immediately you're the, you're the product of your, your first teacher. So in my case, obviously, it's my mother and my father. And uh, at my best, I fuse their two dominant characteristics. My father is a, 
uh, a retired surgeon, very accomplished medical professional, did 11 years of postgrad, um, remarkable human being, saved thousands of lives and all the rest. But he's a very analytical scientific person, mm. loves detail to do a granular level. Mm. And I do too. Yeah. My mother is much more creative and fearless, very bold personality. Doesn't try to dominate the room, but she's game. Uh, she, my mother taught me how to windsurf. Not many mums do that. She made me take her skydiving for her 50th birthday. So that at my best, I like to think that that commitment to intellectual endeavor and, and detail and that fearlessness that gets me to jump out of planes and do the things that I do, that's, that's a product of my mum and dad. And I'm very grateful to them. Plus the fact that they took me around the world when I was a kid. Yeah. And don't get me wrong, there's a price to pay. You, you lack that social network that many people cherish. Mm. And my, I don't have those. I have lifelong friendships, but they're formed later in life. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, I'm very grateful to them for making the world a smaller place to me and, and, and making everything seem within reach. And also opening my eyes to the endless layers of wonder that the world has to offer if you're prepared to go to the edge of the world and see them for yourself, which I certainly am. And after that, you know, certainly I made that very painful transition from childhood to adulthood as a soldier. So I really had an understanding of, of responsibility as a man kicked into me by my drill sergeants and my parachute instructors mm. and everybody else. And I'll never disown that. Some of the best qualities of my life that I admire about myself uh, are the values instilled to me as a military professional. Yeah. And so I'm very grateful to them. But in a broader sense, uh, the great influence for me was the British naturalist and author Gerald Durrell. Mm. You know, for a time, the highest selling uh, author in the English language world, his most famous book was My Family and Other Animals. First book to make me laugh out loud as a child, uh, as a you know an adult book, and so my life is kind of a, a, a poor facsimile of his, you know that commitment to wildlife and wild places and literature. That's really I'm Gerald I'm Gerald Durrell Light, is is what I am, and I love him. I love his legacy. I mean he he invented the notion of the conservation zoo that a zoo should not be some horrible. Uh, you know, county fair, people throwing peanuts at, at monkeys, but it should be a, a vertically integrated environmental resource. The money comes through the gate. It goes to not just the animals you see on display, but your education about yeah. them and to their conservation in the wild, including but not limited to breeding them in captivity under safe conditions and releasing them back into the wild to ensure that they don't become extinct. He's that guy. Wow. And I'm proud to be a life benefactor of his trust and a close friend of his widow. So having be able to work closely and be part of a living legacy of one of your heroes is is a very Did special you thing. No, I could have and I didn't. And I and I I, I got to Jersey in the Channel Islands uh, at uh, Trinity, where the zoo is, Ger Gerald Durrell Zoo, between England and France. In uh, a couple of years after he died, I could have scratched the money together and gone earlier, and I didn't. And it breaks my heart. But then again. Uh, you know, he was a big drinker at the time. I mean, he, like Peter Cook, he kind of drank himself to death. And maybe I'm glad that I didn't meet my hero in that instance. I've met other heroes, people that I thought would be marvelous. Michael Lunig was one. Yeah. I regret meeting Michael Lunig. It was a horrible experience. So, Do you want to say why? My impression was that he was very interested in drawing beautiful pictures and engaging with attractive young women and, yeah, yeah. and not myself, who was a young cartoonist at the Sydney Morning Herald in the age. Yeah. Um, and I felt that uh, he, was, he was more interested in, 
in in one sort of engagement than the other, and and I and I had such a close affinity for his work that it wounded me uh, to see him disregard it. So I'm not saying he's a terrible person. It was just a terrible encounter. Yeah, yeah. I had many of those as a journalist too. Yeah. You know, especially with people who I, I managed to win over Clive James. Did uh, you? Yeah, because he he's famously prickly. Well, he I, I understand the sensitive time that we're in, but he only wanted to be interviewed by women. That that that's but that's a fact. Is that and, is it? And um, and so I turned up. And I remember just the kind of slight eye rolling and, and everything. But then I was quoting back slabs of his book books to him. And, you know, the, the ego went out for Clive and he actually enjoyed the encounter in the end. So that was He's slow to warm up. Good. I, I engaged him once we visited Tasmania. And, um, and it, we, he wasn't enjoying it until we started talking about... Uh, the evolution of Y front underpants, and suddenly it oh, was a great experience. You saw the spark in the eye. Yeah, it, it, yeah something ignited. Yeah, but, he, but he's an interesting fellow of an era. And both chaps we're talking about are, are significantly older than us. Yeah, yeah, and have uh, you know their drivers are probably slightly archaic as well. Mm. I will say that one person I want to mention that's very important to me, uh, and I have met him, but we're not you know close. And it was a joy to meet him. Was the Australian uh, treasure, you know, national treasure singer songwriter Paul Kelly. Oh, wow. And Paul Kelly is, whether he knows it or not, is absolutely instrumental to my international success as an author. So I would not be in 115 countries today if it wasn't for Paul Kelly. What was the thing that... I've always loved his music. Right. And I've always loved his lyrics. Um, But... He is, for me and many of my generation and older and younger, he is the voice of Australia. Mm. Um, but I had an interesting experience. I left the military. I was struggling to get my work out there. I was already a cartoonist with the Sydney Morning Herald, but I wasn't uh, you know, making any headway as an author or a screenwriter. So every year, and I was working as a waiter in a Mexican restaurant at Manly Beach in Sydney uh, and other things. I was a bodyguard, art gallery guide, I was a giant red M&M for a confectionery promotion at Humphreys News Agency on the Corso in Manly, uh, taking the work where I could get it, Yeah. junior copywriter, illustrator for hire, etc. Every year, I would scrape together the money from those jobs and my exhibitions of paintings and so forth, and I would pay for a... We used to buy those round-the-world air tickets, Yeah. and they were much cheaper, as long as you kept going in one direction, east or west. Yeah. A quarter the price of a return ticket to, say, Los Angeles, you could go around the whole world. And so I would... You know, I would do Los Angeles, Chicago, New York, you know, uh, you know, London, France, Barcelona. You just keep going. And often planning my flights overnight so we'd have to pay for a hotel. Huh. And uh, anyway, year after year I would do this. I'd come over here and I'd get the meetings and I'd pitch these books and I'd pitch these TV shows and I'd pitch these movies and had no success. And I remember, and I got closer and closer every time, but I hadn't managed it. And I was down at, I want to say Santa Monica or Malibu or some fairly well-known L.A. area beach town. And, you know, at the end of a trip, I must have been going west this time, and I was on my way home. And I saw these really crappy black and white photocopied flyers, like cheaply made. You photocopy six to a piece of paper and cut it out and hand them out. Advertising Paul Kelly performing at a local records shop. And this crappy record shop and there's nothing part of a coastal town and just these cheap flyers. I'm thinking, what? 
And so I, I looked at the time, I was pretty close to it. And so I kind of ran down to where the shop was and he'd finished his set and it was a crappy store. It was nothing special. Maybe it has a certain place in the pantheon of legendary record shops, but to my eyes, it was no big deal. And I said, oh, has, has, has Paul Kelly gone? They're like, who? I go, the Australian singer. Oh, he's finished, he's gone. And it was like such an incredible lack of respect and so humble that our greatest singer-songwriter would endure this in order to break into this market. And I remember thinking, I'm never going to complain again about what it takes to break into the international market. If Paul Kelly, who I just put at the top of Australian talent, is prepared to do this, then I just have to dry my eyes and get on with it, which I have done. And I had the pleasure of meeting him recently when he came out to Los Angeles and uh, I gave him a copy of my current book, Penguin Bloom, which is becoming a movie. And Reese Witherspoon is producing and Naomi Watts is playing the mother. And I just, I just put in it, you know, thanks for getting me here. Oh, wow. Because he really did. You know? Wow. And I, if I get homesick, I get homesick a lot. Yeah. I put on some Paul Kelly. Yeah. And it makes it worse, but it makes me feel great. Yeah, of course it makes it worse. I, but it's, you, you need to kind of go through that. Um, question six is, when was the last time you cried? Oh, why? God. Um, you know, here's a fascinating thing. I want to reframe that into, I remember the last time that I cried that it actually mattered to me that I was crying was back in, Jesus, when was it? 1994, 95, when I left the army and I got this tropical respiratory infection and I got downgraded from elite combat status as a paratrooper platoon commander, a specialist in heavy weapons and other things. So I was on my, I was on the career path for a, a career in the special forces to being, because of this respiratory infection I picked up in Darwin and thereabouts downgraded to CZE combat zone exempt. So unfit to serve because of this, this tropical respiratory infection. And everything I'd worked for and literal blood, sweat, and tears, nothing metaphorical, literal blood, sweat, and tears, getting those wings, getting that beret, being part of that brotherhood, was gone, gone. And I wept almost uncontrollably. And I, uh, it didn't, not initially, then it just hit me. And, and I just wept uncontrollably for the first time in what felt like 10 years. And that was the last time I felt ashamed about crying. That was, I've never felt ashamed ever since then. I felt, I felt like I'd let myself down and I just felt so helpless and hopeless. But I don't feel like that anymore. I don't feel like that anymore. And one of the joys of being a, a former paratrooper and super heavyweight amateur boxer and all-round man's man <laughs> is that I just don't feel any pressure to impress anybody. Diminish, I don't feel diminished yeah, yeah. by crying. I like yeah. puppies and flowers and Irish poetry. Yeah. And I don't give a shit if you judge me for that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it, you'd be foolish to do it. Um, it's, it's a rich emotional life is important. And being a man is being a man enough to feel stuff. Because mm. how can you truly understand anything if you don't feel it? You know, you, it's, it's, it's not one without the other. Now, most, most recently, I, I cried... Because uh, one of my really close friends, Mike D, who's one of the great zoological gods, and we've been close friends for 20 years, just passed away of cancer. And the great joy was that he had come through in remission initially, was able to attend uh, my wife and mine uh, engagement party, and he was strong enough to attend our wedding. And then sadly, he succumbed again, and he recently passed away. And that was a, a dear loss, watching him, such a vital force, mm. who was beloved around the world. 
you know, I was asked to write his obituary, which was a, an incredibly painful and beautiful responsibility. Yeah. Um, and I could just pick up the phone and call any major zoological institution on any continent, and they were very happy to say how much they love Mike D. So it's such a privilege to to know him and to be his close friend and heartbreaking to lose him, particularly because he lives here in Los Angeles. And when I came here, he was pretty much the only person I knew. And so we would go to the zoo and look at things and look at projects. We'd go catching rattlesnakes up in Palm Desert and, you know, just wonderful times. And the, the day after he died, he wasn't able to speak for the few days before he died. And, and, and I just realized I was so used to picking up the phone and asking him obscure questions and he always knew the answer. I mean, he was an encyclopedia. And that's when you missed yeah, them, right? I just did. I just yeah. wept, you know. Yeah. And uh, so anyway, I'm getting a weepy now talking about it. But I just on the flip side, you know, I cried with laughter too. My life, my wife and I will laugh till we cry a lot. Oh, that's brilliant. And I don't, but I, you know, I don't, I don't see it as a, as a shameful thing at all. I think part of maturity is, particularly for men and especially for Australian men, mm. if, is it's very important to to let those feelings take form mm. it's part of personal growth it's part of dealing with tragedy it's a sign of love and respect for things that matter to you and uh you know it's it's not a surprise to me that the high rates of depression and suicide in young men uh, tend to focus on countries where being tough and being hard mm. is more important than than, uh, than being uh, in tune with your feelings and expressing yeah. articulating yourself. Oh uh, yeah, I mean women have got it right. You actually feel better when you cry. Oh you do. It's it's you know and it doesn't have to be, you know, as it the laughter thing I want to touch on that because it's it's it, you don't need a reason. You know, I I, I love uh, highbrow snooty literary wit. <laughs> but a fart in church is just as good. Oh uh, yeah. Just as good. Yeah. Maybe better. Yeah. Um and uh, so little things can set me off either way. If I watch an ad for the Paralympics, I'll just be a puddle of tears, and then and then I'll watch some really bad B-grade British drama with Jeremy Irons, and I'm crying with laughter. The whole other reason. So. <laughs> Question seven is: What is your current state of mind, PTG? Um, my current state of mind is so uh, we're recording this in the in the sort of pre-festive frenzy in the middle of a huge series of bushfires in Southern California, and I've spent. The last five days in a frenzy of meetings because mm. uh, there's a spasm of industry in Hollywood at this time when everyone's desperate to get everything lined up for next January yep. because before the shop closes down and I am not an urban creature and my mindset is I'm very eager to return to the darkest part of the forest so mm. I just want to get out of here so I'm keen to get up in the mountains and that's what makes California special for those that haven't been here Forget Hollywood, forget the beach. California is about mountains. Mm. There are mountains here two and three times the size of Kosciuszko that no one bothers to look at. Mm. Um, you get up there, it's, it's a magnificent place. So I'm going to head up to the, to the giant redwood country and, and get out of the city. That's my, uh, my, my mindset is escape. To quote Graham Greene, it's ways of escape. <laughs> Question eight, what do you consider your greatest achievement? Um... I would rather than try to nut it down to a specific accomplishment, I would say my greatest achievement, and it's an evolving thing, is my mindset. And I take pride in the fact that I don't bluff and I don't give up. And everyone who knows me knows that. <laughs> you know, and so that was instilled in me by my parents and my drill sergeants and my rugby coaches and and by mentors and people that I admire. Success is never an accident. 
Mm. You know, it just doesn't happen. This myth of a supermodel being discovered on a beach with a family in New Yorker <laughs> when she's 13, maybe it happens, maybe it doesn't. But, but still, there's a very big difference between opportunity and readiness and actually achieving success. And it always, no matter how fatuous the profession, whether it's humorous gift books like mine or even being a, a model or something like that, that might seem pretty shallow compared to, you know, open heart surgery and, and, and putting a, a human colony on Mars takes an enormous amount of effort mm. and I uh, you know as a young soldier as a paratrooper the ethos is die first quit later which is I won't lie to you is somewhat extreme for an author of amusing gift books but I take pride in not giving up on things that's great and I think that's my greatest achievement uh, die first <laughs> quit later is that right yeah <laughs> question nine who would you want on your side in a battle and why? So this is not an abstract concept for me. No. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I've, I've, just, I've just discussed the, 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 the very, um, you know, very tough ethos of, of, of elite combat soldiers, that mentality. Um, I never had to think about who I have because I would have all of, my, all of my former brothers in arms. I would have every paratrooper I ever served with. I'd have every officer I served with, every soldier I served with. Uh, and being part of that brotherhood is a very special thing. Mm. Um, insight into that world is something that we could all benefit from. And it's incredibly humbling. The notion of sacrifice, anonymous sacrifice. You know, I was, you know, when you're part of 3RAR Para, that was a big deal back in the day. Within the services, I came out into what we, you know, to Civvy Street, into the normal world. No one even knew it existed. Unbelievable. No one cares. Yeah. No one can imagine what it, what it is. And it's not what the Hollywood types predicted to uh, try to portray it as you know even uh you know these special forces movies all these chiseled actors with their perfect hair and that's not how it is you know it's bigger than that they're normal men and women doing extraordinary things and i remember as a paratrooper you know it wasn't you know this macho screaming that you get in the movies because the guy you shout at today checks your parachute on your back tomorrow as you jump out of the plane so also everyone worked very hard to be there everybody wants to stay there and we all suffer and we acknowledge that we suffer and we're all afraid and we do it anyway. And some of the stuff that seems the most heroic is not the most heroic. Jumping out of a plane in the middle of the night covered in bombs is just a way to get to work. And then the real danger begins. Yeah. So when you've done that, that appreciation helps put things in context. And I remember all these guys inside the Hercules were all lined up and they're these giant kitchen, uh, garden tidy bags uh, lashed with Ziplocs to the center pylons in the Hercules. People getting airsick because the last couple of hours you do what's called tack flying, where the plane goes down to 100 feet and contours to earth to get under the radar. And the last second it pops up to a safe jump height between 750 and 1,000 feet, still very low, but you're being smashed around while you're trying to get your combat gear on, your parachute on, and, and people are just vomiting into these garbage bags. And of course, once someone goes, the next guy goes, sort of sympathy puking, and that's real life. That's what soldiering is. That misery that never makes it on the screen. That hardship, the broken toes, the blistered feet, the, the, the salty sores on your shoulders from mm. the pack. That's soldiering to me. So this abstract concept of sport as war and business as war is such facile, impotent bullshit uh, to me. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, I, and on, the, on, the, on the flip side, I feel so humbled and empowered by having served alongside these men and women. And it gives me a strength that sustains me and helps me respect the fact that I must never complain because I'm not gonna get shot 
in the head because my next book sucks. Mm. And, and, and many, one, many people have a life that's worse. And the big epiphany for me when I was in the Cambodian war in 89 as a young sergeant, young undergraduate, and went to the Site 2 refugee camp. This is towards the end of Pol Pot's regime of terror. And every male between 14 and 40 in Site 2, which had some five or 6,000 people in five hectares, uh, was missing hands and feet, yeah. you know, and just this hopeless life. They were never given sanctuary in Thailand. They lived in these crappy accommodations and the whole place was overrun by Khmer Rouge wounded. They were treating as a hospital. The UN was basically subsidizing, you know, Pol Pot's efforts. So all this confusion and hardship and suffering. And I realized then that I'd never, ever, no matter how much I was prepared to sacrifice, and as a soldier, you're prepared to put yourself in harm's way, I would never, ever be able to fix all the world's problems, never be enough money, to, to buy, never be enough band-aids, never enough bullets. You couldn't do it. Yeah. And uh, and again, back to the Paul Kelly thing, you just can't complain. Mm. Uh, and not because you need to be stoic, obdurate, unfeeling, but because you have every opportunity and almost no adversity uh, compared to, <laughs> what, to what they're doing. So, you know, I, I love that fraternity. I'm very grateful for it. And I laugh at Hollywood, even though I'm impressed by the talent here. People walk off a set hugging and kissing and carrying on with your friends forever, by which they mean the next production and they forget each other yeah. after the next yeah. show tanks. Whereas, you know, soldiers just nod and grin and that's it. The blood bond is forged forever. And, and I'm very grateful to be part of that. Wow. Um, question 10, the final question. What would you like your last words to be? I like him to be something like, this looks like a good place for a nap or... I was told there'd be Tim Tams, but <laughs> but knowing me, <laughs> it'll probably be something like <laughs> uh, I'm pretty sure that's a venom. I'm pretty sure that's a non-venomous snake or something like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's fine. You picked that up. So <laughs> I don't know, but I, I I hope it's something like this. It looks like a great place for a nap. We have ignition sequence start. Short distance, high impact. Five, four, three, two. All engines running. Ten questions with Adam Zwar. Big names, great minds. Make yourself a cup of tea. Liftoff. We have liftoff. I'm Robin Ince, and welcome to your universe. As you may know, there are other universes available, but you're in this one, and you're in the universe where there is an infinite monkey cage book written by me and Professor Brian Cox. The book is called How to Build a Universe, specifically this one, although in the book we do discuss the possibility of multiple universes. We also explain why it is impossible for ghosts to exist, why space exploration is a wonderful thing, and we finish the book, I think, rightly, with the apocalypse. The end of everything. Buy it now.